Welcome to the 96th episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. As we approach our landmark 100th episode, we'll be taking a look from time to time at some of the iconic legends, figures, and events so prominent in our state's history. In this episode, I examine the actions surrounding the Revolutionary War execution of state hero Nathan Hale as a spy, and find there are still some burning questions left to be answered about this hasty and irregular event. It's a story from my new book, Creating Connecticut, Critical Moments That Shaped a Great State, just out from Globe Pequot Press. And as you'll soon hear, when looking for answers about the rough justice handed out to Nathan Hale by the British in New York in 1776, where there's smoke, there's fire. That's rough justice for Nathan Hale, coming up next on Grading the Nutmeg. Rough justice for Nathan Hale. No court-martial, no Bible, no last letters. Why did Revolutionary War hero Nathan Hale receive such rough justice? Each of us has lived through some of them. Some of us have lived through many of them. They are events of such profound impact that they are seared into our memories the instant we hear about them. They change our world, and the very news of their occurrence changes us. Ever after, we connect such events with the moment when and the place where we learned about them. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. Where were you when John F. Kennedy was assassinated? From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Where were you when the Challenger exploded? Where were you when Bobby Kennedy died, when Martin Luther King was shot, when the Berlin Wall came down? Some moments hit harder because they hit so close to home. The primary school tragedy at Sandy Hook was one of those moments for Connecticut's. And before that, the awful morning in New York that has permanently changed the way we think about the date, September 11th. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. CNN Center right now is just beginning to work on this story, obviously calling our sources and trying to figure out exactly what happened, but clearly something relatively devastating happening this morning there. Every year for the rest of our lives, each of us will relive our experience of that 9-11 morning in 2001 when nearly 3,000 of our fellow Americans died. You know, 175 New York. 
We have some problems over here right now. We might have a hijack over here, two of them. Oh my God, so both towers are now. It was a day filled with horror and with heroism. And I suspect that on that date, you may give special thought to the 411 heroes, 343 firefighters, 60 police officers, and eight paramedics who marched up those flights of stairs and died trying to save their fellow countrymen. That's a crucible of heroism we should know we morally must never forget. But this story is about another fire and a different hero whose heroism had a curious parallel to 9-11. I'm talking about 21-year-old Connecticut and state hero Nathan Hale, who gave his life for his country almost two and a half centuries ago. Academic historians have not generally been kind to heroes, because creating heroes and crafting histories are often at odds. Scholars practicing their learned specialties are generally more interested in approaching sources critically rather than reverentially, and having done that, let the chips fall where they may. The results have not often been pretty. Often, as historians have clarified historical recollections, they've called into question or at least complicated older heroic narratives. So it is with Nathan Hale. Recent years have seen a substantial new outpouring of writing on Hale. One impetus behind this new work was the 2003 acquisition by the Library of Congress of a manuscript history of the American Revolution written by Consider Tiffany, a Connecticut storekeeper from Heartland. Tiffany's multi-chapter pen and ink history of the war provides a previously unknown account of Hale's arrest as a spy in 1776 that corroborated some prior evidence and supplemented other sources, but overall cast our state's hero in a whole new and not very flattering light. Tiffany confirmed, for example, reports that the person who exposed Hale as a spy was the famed Robert Rogers and not Hale's loyalist cousin Samuel, as some sources had suggested. Rogers was the founder of Rogers Rangers, the crack colonial militia unit whose unconventional bush fighting tactics made them the elite fighting units of the French and Indian War and the recognized progenitor of today's Army Special Forces. One of the reasons Rogers, who himself was very much a hero to his contemporaries during the French and Indian War, is less well known today, is because during the American Revolution, he sided with the British. When Nathan Hale, having volunteered to spy for George Washington, was traversing Long Island seeking intelligence in the late summer of 1776, Rogers was there recruiting men to join his unit of Redcoat Rangers. In Tiffany's account of Hale's capture, the astute Rogers, having sized up Hale as a possible patriot spy, began shadowing him. He dressed as a civilian, represented himself as a patriot sympathizer, and befriended Hale at a local tavern. Rogers conspicuously drank a toast to Congress and won the youthful Hale into his confidence by telling the young man that he, Rogers, was doing undercover surveillance for the Long Island Patriots. This led Hale to disclose his own secret mission. 
According to Tiffany, at a second meeting arranged by Rogers, Hale again was enticed to talk more freely about his intelligence-gathering activities. Rogers, having heard all he needed to hear, suddenly stood up, revealed his true identity, called forth a company of British troops he'd arranged to have standing nearby, and arrested Hale as a spy. At this point, Tiffany tells us, Hale acted like anything but a hero, denying his name and the business he came upon. And he continued vehemently denying that he was Nathan Hale or that he had anything to do with spying all the way to the New York headquarters of British commander William Howe. There, Tiffany noted, several persons recognized him and called him by name, upon which he was hanged as a spy. Tiffany's account of Hale's panicky effort to save his skin certainly contrasts with the story given by William Hull, Hale's friend and a fellow American officer. Hull reported that upon being arrested, Hale immediately declared his name, his rank in the American army, and his object in coming within British lines. No panic, no denials. Hull's story also insisted that Hale continued to display the same kind of manly composure and fortitude right up to the gallows, where Hale supposedly said the famous last words, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Now clearly, both of these stories can't be right, and in fact it is most likely that neither of these stories is completely right. Mary Beth Baker, who has written a considered analysis of both these primary Hale sources and their authors, points out that neither Consider Tiffany nor William Hull were eyewitnesses to Nathan Hale's arrest or his execution, and that their accounts are, at best, based on hearsay evidence. Moreover, she calls our attention to the fact that each of these authors had a strong personal agenda influencing their narratives. Tiffany, who penned his account of Nathan Hale's capture more than a decade after Hale's hanging, had actually been under house arrest in Connecticut's Northwest Hills at the time of Hale's capture, having been accused quite accurately of being a loyalist. Tiffany's manuscript History of the American Revolution, in which the Hale story appears, was a diatribe against the American cause and a prophetic lamentation, complete with supernatural portents, predicting the impending collapse of the very disunited states. It was that rarest of all things, a history written by the losers, and it reflected in tone and text the bitterness of the defeated. Hull, whose stirring account of Hale's selfless valor is the bedrock document of Hale's reputation for heroism, was, unlike Tiffany, a patriot through and through. Perhaps Hale's closest friend in the military, Hull earned his own reputation for bravery in the Revolutionary War battles of White Plains, Trenton, Princeton, Stillwater, Saratoga, Fort Stanwix, Monmouth, and Stony Point, and he was honored by both Washington and Congress. In 1805, he became governor of the Michigan Territory, and at the outbreak of the War of 1812, he was made a brigadier general and commander of the Army of the Northwest. Although Hull's account of Hale's execution was, like Tiffany's, based on second-hand information, he had first heard of Hale's death the day after his execution, 
during a Flag of Truce conference with British Captain John Montressor, who had actually witnessed Hale's hanging. Because Hull got his information about Hale's death so near to the actual event, and from an eyewitness, one might assume that his account should be considered inherently more reliable than Tiffany's. But consider this. Hull's account of Hale's death was not mentioned by anyone until 1799, almost a quarter century after Hale's execution. Furthermore, it was not published until 49 years after that, as part of a posthumous biography of Hull, assembled from manuscripts which subsequently disappeared by Hull's daughter and grandson. In shaping their biography, Hull's descendants had an agenda no less forceful than consider Tiffany's, for they were trying to repair Hull's by then completely shattered reputation. Hull had fallen into disgrace after he had surrendered Detroit to the British during the War of 1812 without so much as firing a shot. He reasoned that the Americans could not overcome the combined force of the British Army and their Indian allies, and that to fight them would have led to havoc along the Michigan frontier. So Hull had chosen to take the personally dishonorable course of surrendering to the enemy without a fight in order to achieve what he believed would be the virtuous outcome of not wasting American lives. Unfortunately for Hull, his contemporaries, including the officers who served under him, did not see his behavior in that light. Hull was court-martialed for cowardice, convicted, and sentenced to be shot. Though he was given a reprieve by President James Madison, the disgrace of the surrender dogged him till his death in 1825. The biography assembled by his descendants was an all-out effort to redeem Hull's battered reputation, and the story of Nathan Hale was central to that effort. By drawing a close and personal parallel between Hale and Hull, the biographer suggested that Hull's surrender of Detroit without a fight, an act considered as dishonorable as spying had been before Hale's heroic death changed how people thought about it, could, like Hale's execution, be seen as intensely patriotic and self-sacrificing if viewed in the appropriate context. The axes being ground by the Hull family in their version of the Nathan Hale story were no less personal and no less sharp than the ones in the account rendered by Consider Tiffany. And it's naive to read either Hull's or Tiffany's account of Hale's capture and execution without being fully mindful of the agendas that inform their production. But that's part of what makes the Hale story so interesting and timeless. The evidence about Hale is fragmentary, contradictory, and full of gaps. And because of that, historians studying Nathan Hale have to make choices about whose evidence to believe and how best to account for lapses in the record about which we know so very little with complete certainty. This has produced accounts of Hale the hero, Hale the incompetent, Hale the naive, and even, this from an undergraduate student, Hale the idiot. Yet there's one thing upon which virtually all sources about Hale agree, and it's the thing about Hale that makes him truly admirable. At the same time, there's one usually overlooked factor about the Hale story that helps explain one of its ongoing mysteries, why the young patriot was subjected by the British to such uncommonly harsh and summary justice. 
Surprisingly, that overlooked factor is the very thing that connects Hale to 9-11. Whether Hale was exposed as a spy by Robert Rogers or by his cousin Samuel Hale, whether he immediately admitted his actions when he was arrested or tried to save his skin by lying, whether he said, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country or something longer and less memorable, whether he was a good spy or an incompetent spy, whether he was adequately prepared for his mission or sent as a sheep to the wolves, there's one thing about Nathan Hale that his contemporaries, both American and British, and the historians who followed them have all agreed upon. When the chips were down and it was clear he would pay the ultimate price for his actions, Hale acted with great courage and composure. He died a good and an honorable death as an American patriot, and for that grace under pressure, the writer Ernest Hemingway's definition of courage in the service of liberty, Hale is, at least in this writer's estimation, entitled to lasting honor as an American and a Connecticut hero. This is especially true given the extraordinarily harsh circumstances surrounding his execution. Hale was not the first spy captured by the British or the Americans, but he was the first spy to be executed by either side in the war for independence. Moreover, he was hanged within hours of his arrest, having been denied the benefit of trial by court-martial required under the English Articles of War. In his final hours, Hale was even denied access to a Bible, and his last letters, one to his commanding officer Thomas Knowlton and the other to his brother Enoch, were opened by the British and never delivered. Observers trying to account for this rough justice in the case of Hale have often attributed it to battlefield pressures faced by British commanders and to the facts that Hale had, in at least one account, both openly confessed to being a spy and was found with incriminating evidence on his person. Both arguments are weak. The idea that British General Howe sentenced Hale to immediate death because he needed to get back to battle is without foundation. Hale was captured during a significant lull in the New York campaign. Firing had stopped almost a week before Hale's capture after the September 16th Battle of Harlem Heights and would not begin again in earnest until the end of October with the Battle of White Plains. Nor should we assume that Hale's public confession abrogated the military requirement that spies be convicted by a formal court-martial. To discover what did in fact trigger the inhumane treatment of the condemned Hale, we must look elsewhere. George Dudley Seymour, perhaps the foremost Nathan Hale biographer, noted that when Hale was brought to the artillery park for execution, he must have seen a drifting pall of smoke rising from the great fire then raging in the city. It is to that pall of smoke and the city's great fire that we must turn for answers. On the night of Friday, September 21, 1776, the same evening that Robert Rogers arrested Nathan Hale, a great reddish light appeared just after midnight on the streets of southern Manhattan. The fire that was the great light source started at a tavern near Whitehall. Brisk, southerly breezes quickly spread its embers to nearby houses, whose wood frames were tender dry after a long, unusually rain-free summer. In minutes, the tavern fire became a conflagration. 
The fire raged with inconceivable violence, a British officer later reported, and in its destructive progress swept away all the buildings between Broad Street and the North Hudson River. As far as King's College, a few only accepted. Long before the main fire reached Trinity Church, that large, ancient, and venerable edifice was in flames, which baffled every effort to suppress them. The steeple, which was 140 feet high, resembled a vast pyramid of fire, exhibiting a most awful and grand spectacle. Several women and children perished in the fire. Their shrieks joined to the roaring of the flames, the crash of falling houses, and the widespread ruin which everywhere appeared formed a scene of horror great beyond description, which was still heightened by the darkness of the night. As terrible as the fire was, it was not unexpected. The question of whether the American army, if forced to evacuate the city, would burn New York rather than turn it over to the British had been thick in the air as smoke for months. Such fears were not without substance. From the Americans' perspective, allowing the British to make their winter quarters in a major port town, while they, the Americans, were forced to fend for themselves in the frozen countryside, seemed pointless, if not strategically foolish. Prior to the Continental Army's evacuation of the city, Washington's trusted advisor, General Nathaniel Green, had urged firing New York as a strategic necessity. Two-thirds of the property of New York belongs to the Tories, he reminded Washington. I would burn the city and suburbs for the following reasons. If the enemy takes the city, we never can recover it without a superior naval force. We will deprive the enemy of an opportunity of barracking their whole army together and deprive them of a general market. All these advantages would result from destruction of the city and not one benefit can arise to us from its preservation. British commanders not only expected that a retreating American army might try to torch New York, they were also certain of which group of soldiers Washington would call on to light that torch. New Englanders, unlike their New York or Pennsylvania counterparts, were strongly in favor of the city's destruction. They had long viewed New York as a kind of commercial Sodom and Gomorrah and had nothing but contempt for the possibility of letting the city fall under British control. Nathan Hale's friend, Gilbert Saltonstall, had written to him ten months before the Great Fire, saying, I wish New York was either raised to the foundations or strongly garrisoned by the American forces. I greatly fear the virtue of the New Yorkers whose religion is trade and whose God is gain. On September 2nd, as the Americans were preparing their evacuation plans, a British officer had written home from Long Island. I've just heard there's been a most dreadful fray in New York. The New Englanders insisted on setting the town on fire and retreating. This was opposed by the New Yorkers, who were joined by the Pennsylvanians, and a battle has been the consequence in which many lost their lives. Another letter, written two days later, to a gentleman in London, lent credence to the rumor. It reported that escapees from the city had informed the British generals that Washington had ordered three battalions of New York provincials to leave New York, and that they should be replaced by an equal number of Connecticut troops, 
but the New York troops assured that the Connecticuts would burn and destroy all the houses preemptorily refused to give up the city. Such reports, intriguing as they are, say more about the rumor machines that accompany armies in the field than about Washington's intentions for New York. Not that he hadn't considered burning the city. He certainly had. On September 2nd, the same day he was allegedly positioning troops to torch the city, Washington had written Congress asking guidance on whether the city should be destroyed. If we should be obliged to abandon the town, ought it to stand as winter quarters for the enemy, he had asked? The alternative, he made clear, was the city's destruction. Congress, most likely reasoning that if Washington actually burned New York, the British would feel free to fight fire with fire in any American city, responded immediately and emphatically. Congress would have special care taken, they instructed Washington, that no damage be done to the said city by his troops on their leaving it. And for Washington, who throughout his life embodied the concept of civilian control of the military, that was that. The city he evacuated two weeks later was left very much intact. Fears of an American plot to torch the city, however, did not leave with him. New York loyalists and their liberating British military leaders continued to worry about Washington's intentions, and so, when the hell on earth that would be called the Great Fire swept through the city the Friday night of Nathan Hale's capture, those who fought the fire and those who fled the fire automatically laid the blame on a patriot plot. That produced horrific consequences. Newspaper accounts printed after the blaze had destroyed more than 1,000 buildings, between 20 and 25 percent of New York's total building stock, describe in great detail the retribution pro-British mobs extracted from those they thought responsible for setting the flames. The St. James Chronicle of London, calling the fire an atrocious act, reported that one William Smith, an officer in a New England regiment, was taken with a match in his hand and sacrificed on the spot to the fury of the soldiers who were there fighting the fire. The Gaines Mercury, also of London, reported that several persons were discovered with large bundles of matches dipped in melted resin and brimstone, attempting to set fire to the houses. One white, a carpenter, was observed to cut the leather buckets which were used to carry water to the fire. This provoked the spectators to such a degree that they instantly hung him up. In the propaganda war to shape public opinion after the blaze, the reports published in English and Loyalist newspapers tried to establish conclusively that the Great Fire of New York was an act of arson ordered by the American command. Thus, the persons who called themselves our friends and protectors were the perpetrators of this atrocious deed, which in guilt and villainy is not inferior to the gunpowder plot. Our distress was very great before, but this disaster has increased it tenfold. Many hundreds of families have lost their all and are reduced from a state of affluence to the lowest ebb of want and wretchedness, destitute of shelter, food, or clothing. Although the debate over its cause has raged centuries longer than the fire itself, 
The majority of historians have concluded that New York's Great Fire of 1776 was started accidentally and was spread not by arsonists, but by the strong south winds blowing across Manhattan that night. As to those supposed patriot arsonists whose names appeared in the Tory newspaper accounts of the fire, we are left only to speculate. Their names appear only in those accounts. But as to the burning question of whether Nathan Hale's real mission was to torch New York, as William Henry Shelton argued in 1915, the idea that Washington would send an arsonist to torch New York via the circuitous route through Connecticut and Long Island seems hardly credible. And certainly, if the British had had actual evidence that Hale was an arsonist, they would have trumpeted it loudly to the enraged and homeless loyalists of New York seeking revenge for their suffering and in the transatlantic newspaper battle for public opinion. Yet, though Hale was not an arsonist, it is to that pall of smoke hanging over New York that one must turn in order to understand the rough justice he received from the British command. New York was still smoldering, and the rage of both the army and the populace over what they were convinced was an act of arson was still white-hot. Hale, a New England officer, although captured on Long Island as a spy gathering intelligence, nevertheless matched precisely the image of the arsonists both the British generals and the loyalist citizenry had expected Washington to send to burn their town. Hale might not have been an arsonist, but in the search for a symbol of revenge for arson, he would serve just fine. It is smoldering anger over Washington's presumed use of New England troops to burn New York that explains Hale's being immediately sentenced to death without benefit of court-martial, the British command's refusal to give Hale the comfort of a Bible on that Sunday morning of his death, as well as the fact that they both opened and refused to deliver his last letters. And that smoldering anger over Washington's presumed use of New England troops to burn New York also explains one more thing. Four days after Hale's execution, a British officer wrote a letter from New York to a friend in England describing what had happened to Hale following his execution. We hanged up a rebel spy the other day, the officer wrote and some soldiers got out of a rebel gentleman's garden, a painted soldier on a board, and hung it along with the rebel, and wrote upon it General Washington, and I saw it yesterday beyond headquarters by the roadside. A hanging cardboard cutout soldier named General Washington, and a New England spy named Nathan Hale, hanging conspicuously side by side along a busy road provided a pure and undoubtedly welcome message of vengeance and revenge to New Yorkers furious at the burning of their city. Whenever we try to visualize Nathan Hale, I suspect almost all of us imagine him young, handsome, and brave, standing defiantly on the gallows uttering his final patriotic words. If we're to fully understand the circumstances of his execution, however, we must also see the bloated, distorted body of that same young man hanging from a tree days later, and next to his grotesque form, a hanged cutout of a soldier with the name Washington painted on it. War creates heroes. 
but it also turns people into hateful, unreasoning, vengeful creatures hell-bent on extracting revenge. And that brings us back to the fire with which this story began and the days of fear that followed the 9-11 attack. The cruel and inhuman treatment of Nathan Hale by the British as a scapegoat for an enemy they thought they knew but could not see is a reminder of how easy it is to brand a whole people as evil because of the acts of a few. It is also a call, even in times of terror, for us to judge others carefully, cautiously, and with reason. Thanks for listening. For more stories about the critical moments that shape Connecticut history and culture, read my new book, Creating Connecticut, available online and at your local bookstores and libraries. And to read great stories about Connecticut history year-round, read or subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. This is state historian Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.